Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Today I'm going to share a conversation that I recently had with Dr. Eric Smith, who's an associate professor of rhetoric and composition at York College of Pennsylvania. Eric's most recent book is a critique of anti-racism in rhetoric and composition, The Semblance of Empowerment, and he is a co-founder and co-editor of Free Black Thought. He's also a writing fellow for Heterodox Academy. So in his academic work, Eric thinks about things like political rhetoric and the rhetorics of diversity. He's teaching about that. He's writing about that. He's written many books. He is also writing in popular culture in Newsweek and other places on the subject of race and anti-racism. So Eric's really in a lot of ways the perfect person for us to talk to because he does two things that we hope we are regularly doing here on the Civil Squared podcast. One, he's thinking about how we communicate with one another. He's thinking about what productive conversation and dialogue looks like, sounds like, how we do it and how we do more of it. And he's also thinking and writing about a subject that is regularly in the headlines today. Uh, And it's something that our, you know, you as a listener probably are concerned about and challenged by in your community. And that, in this case, is racism and anti-racism. So you're going to hear in our conversation, we talk about uh, how we have conversations about race, the challenges to having conversations about race, and how we can try to do better. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Eric, first of all, thank you for being here. We're really excited for you to be here because you look both at how we talk to one another. You think about rhetoric. I mean, you're in a rhetoric department. You think about rhetoric. You think about how we communicate with one another, but you're also doing research on how we talk about race and how we think about race. So if we could start there with what do you think when you think today about conversations we're having, not just publicly, but between one another kind of individually in this country today in 2021, May of 2021, about race, how do you think things are going? Um, not great. I don't have to tell you that or the audience, uh, not great at all. And I think, um, there are several reasons why, um, as far as my research and interests are concerned, um, I can, uh, talk about a couple. The first thing is that when we enter into conversations, especially ones, uh, about contentious topics, like say race, racism and things like that, um, we come with baggage, mental and emotional baggage. And that baggage is so prominent that it kind of gets in the way of seeing one another. You know, it's it's like the suitcases are stacked up and and we can't see the other person for who that person is, right? So when we enter into a conversation, especially when we know the conversation is going to be contentious, especially when we know the topic and things like that, we show up with armor on. We show up and our goal is not to come to an understanding, it's to protect our egos. We may not even realize that, you know, because we don't have that uh, secure base that I will probably end up talking about a little bit later on. Um, And if we are 
primarily protecting ourselves, we're not thinking about the other person as much as we should be. We're not listening as much as we uh, should be. The primary goal is to reemerge unscathed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we talked to um, Tanya Israel, who is a professor of psychology at UC Santa Barbara, who's got a book on, you know, practical like tips in dialogue. And one of the things she talks about is the importance of thinking about what you want to achieve in a conversation and also having some humility about what you yeah. can achieve, right? If we're just trying to convince someone of our point of view, that's one thing. Um, and again, we should be especially humble about that. But if we're trying to win, uh, or as you say, just come away unscathed and get our point of view without listening, without understanding, we come at that a very different way than if we're actually trying to hear one another and understand one another. And then when we're on the subject of race, I suspect, as you say, we come with so much baggage, like it just already at the start of a conversation about that, the, the landscape is really dangerous, I would think for most people. Yeah, and, and, and it is. And I mean, when it comes to race, I mean, we, we have that, that idea that we're protecting ourselves and, and we're not on the offensive, we're defending ourselves, you know, and, and we feel righteous in doing that. We feel like it's, uh, and this is not being overdramatic, uh, a life or death situation. Right. I was listening to um, a past podcast of yours in which the professor, I believe he was a philosophy professor, uh, discussed the fact that the same part of the brain lights up when you're losing an argument as it does when you're being chased by a bear, right? Yeah. That's all you yeah. need to know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. why things yeah. are so difficult when it comes to conversing. But what adds to the difficulty, especially when it comes to race matters, is the primary ideology that's winning out today that says certain people with certain physical characteristics are oppressors and others are oppressed. And they are already cast as those roles in this narrative. Now, when you're yeah. starting from there, you shouldn't be surprised when the conversation goes awry. Especially when the person uh, to, to keep with the uh, narrative and casting metaphor wasn't auditioning for oppressive. Yeah. That person came, you know, uh, to have a conversation, right? Um, yeah. Ideally, right? And yeah. the other person may not have been auditioning for oppressed. You know, we have, we have these presumptions that okay, you look this way, so you uh, are this way, right? And if we're starting there, and this is um. This is coming out of contemporary anti-racist uh, scholarship and activism and things like that. Um, if we're starting there, then it's not going to end well, period. On this subject, I wanna talk about more of the detail that I wanna talk more about your writing on this and your thinking about this, but I guess I wanna get up front that um, I've heard this from people over the past five years as we've been doing this, this kind of work, people saying, well, look, there's some things that conversation's not going to help, right? Like there's some things it's like, it's too late to talk um, or conversation doesn't get us anywhere. There are other things we need to do. Now I'm going to start by saying, I acknowledge that there are things that change the world outside of conversation. I'm not saying I think it's the only thing that does, right. but from your point of view, is conversation, is dialogue, is discussion about these sub, about the subject of race a productive, a valuable way to approach racial issues? And the, the very 
thing, like the very wrong things we, we need to address in our country is conversation and dialogue with one another, with those of us who disagree, with those of us who have different baggage, different roles. Is it a really important part of that process? Um, I guess, and I'm kind of thinking about this off the top of my head here, um, but I think the difference um, is whether the conversation is focused on identification, and I'll explain that in a second, or telos, like the, the end goal yeah. of something. So identification, I'm getting that from Kenneth Burke's work on the rhetoric motives. Mm -hmm. uh, and he basically says, when we're talking to people, we're not so much trying to persuade as we're trying to identify with, or see or help them identify with us. So mm -hmm. we use, uh, you know, um, certain rhetorical tactics from a particular discourse. We use uh, certain words that they already are familiar with, uh, certain ideas and metaphors uh, that they recognize, things like that. Um, and that's what we try to do there, identify with the other person. So that's not really about winning or coming to a particular conclusion. It's about finding common ground. Mm -hmm. And then you have the teleological conversation, which is there's a problem out there that we need to solve and we need to collaborate in order to solve it, right? And that's a that's a different kind of conversation, right? Because it it's it's bigger than the two of you or mm -hmm. the two of you or whatever. Uh, it's about mm -hmm. this particular situation. The teleological conversation um, is how I shape my pedagogy, actually, mm -hmm. right? Um, I when I'm doing what's called problem based learning, you know, it's all about the problem that needs to be solved which um, as several um, scholars, teachers have already recognized is great for multiculturalism and uh, a democratic mindset because you transcend those things and you're working together as people, people who want mm -hmm. to find a solution to this very real problem. So, you know, um, there are two kinds of conversations, I guess I'll say, the uh, identification conversation and the telos-centered. So in the first part, you talked about the identification. I think it's really important too to distinguish that from uh, identification in order to understand someone, as you say, or to, you know, sympathize with someone versus identifying someone so you can peg them, right? Because one of the things I think we're really good at doing on all sorts of subjects, but I think it's true on race too, is to say, because I know something about you, a fact about you, I therefore can flatten you out and say, I know all the things about you, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, that's true when we talk about political dialogue, but I know certainly it's true when we talk about race, right? Because, because I'm white and you're black, we know something about each other and therefore we know a whole bunch of other things about each other. That's sometimes how we think about conversation. Yeah. Um, and it's not that kind of identification. No, it's not. In fact, that, that kind of identification, I wouldn't even call identification. It's uh, it's the erasure of it, identity. Really. Yeah. Um, and that's why you see so often um, the term person replaced by body or people by bodies, right? Um, especially when it comes to uh, contemporary anti-racism and the oppressed oppressor power dynamic. Um, it's yeah. easy to peg somebody if they're just a body. Right. They're a person, they're coming with experiences, 
uh, you know, idiosyncratic personalities, nuance, right? It's, and you can't very well uh, read the mind of somebody who's a person, right? But if that's a body and that body's already coded as oppressor or oppressed, then you can manipulate things. So we take shortcuts all the time, right? We take shortcuts because partly for convenience sake, we do it. We process things through shortcut. But when we're in conversation with somebody, there are some shortcuts that are really bad shortcuts to take. And one of those is to say, I know this fact about you and therefore I must understand everything about you. Or I must understand that you buy this, 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 and this idea, right? Mm -hmm. um, and having said that, I also want to be, I think, uh, clear and explicit about the fact that at the same time, um, I think there can be real challenges in discussion about race because we also make assumptions. And I've, I, I, you have a piece in Newsweek, you have a number of pieces in Newsweek, obviously, but there's, there's one in particular where you talk about the idea that uh, if, if I'm talking to you as a black man, that you have to lecture to me, you have to preach, you have to explain things to me. And that on the one hand, it does seem unreasonable. I would be very unhappy if someone came to me and said, can you explain everything on behalf of all women for, you know, yeah. for me or, you know, all people of this descent or whatever. At the same time, if I want to understand an experience that I don't have, I have to talk to somebody who has different experience. So I can imagine that makes it even more difficult to have a discussion as well, right? So let's say I have the best of intentions about understanding, um, learning and all of those things, but I'm like, I think that's another one of these minefields to say, well, you know, I'm gonna to talk to you. No, in this case, this is something you study, right? This is something you think about. But if I just walked up to you because you were my friend and said, you know, explain race to me because you're black, that would be, that would seem unreasonable, right? Yes, uh, I can. If I had a dime for every person who asked me a question about all 50 million black people in this country, <laughs> I'd be a very rich person. And, <laughs> and it's, it's, yeah, on one hand, you see that the questions are sincere and you want to help. But on the other hand, you're rolling your eyes inside, right? And you're saying, wow, really? Th think about what you're doing, sir. You're asking yeah. one person to describe all these people who look like him. I'm not going to ask you about, you know, what's going on in Appalachia? You know, and, you know, if, if you're a white guy, you know, who's a coastal elite, I'm not going to yeah. ask you, you know, I, I know that. But for some reason, um, you know, people of color, right, uh, the people who have been traditionally marginalized are all the same, um, which is, yeah. uh, uh, that is the very definition of a shortcut in thinking, right? Yeah, and, uh, it's yeah. very frustrating. That being said, I love talking about this stuff. So I may preface my response with, well, I'm just one person. And I don't represent everybody, but um, because I do like those conversations and I feel like we need to have more of them. So it is this piece exactly about, I think it, the title of it is, and I know sometimes editors put titles in, so I've gotten to the point where I'm careful about it, assuming that you wrote the title, but I think it's why I still talk to white people about race. I actually did write that title. Okay. In there, so the point you just made, I think is a really important one. And one of the reasons I think your work is so useful because, you know, on the one hand, you can say, don't tell somebody to go read 47 books. You also say in that piece, they probably should read those 47 yeah. books, right? 
Now, that doesn't mean you can't talk until they've read right. 47 books. And that whole framing, like the way you put that in context, is something that I think is another challenge to discussions about all sorts of topics, but certainly about race, like that there's an either or, right? That there's a right or a wrong. And certainly there are on some issues, right and wrong. I don't wanna, I don't wanna deny that. But, you know, we are complicated people. There, these are complicated issues. And in, in, I would think in many parts of discussion about race, there's not a, this is right, and this is wrong, right? Like, I'm gonna say right up front. Obviously, we're not gonna have a discussion about whether we should be treated equally as human beings. That, that I don't think, for me, I don't think there's a right or wrong about that. And I think for most people, there's not a right or wrong about that. I'm sure there are exceptions to that. But then when we get to, and I'm thinking particularly right now, I just read a headline this morning about a very, like a number of state legislatures that are gonna ban um, the teaching of critical race theory. When I hear something about a state legislature banning the teaching of something, that makes me super nervous, oh, yeah. right? That makes me really nervous. I, but, but I also know that when something makes me nervous and I think immediately, that's not good, that's a signal to me that I need to listen and I need to learn more about it. And I guess I do see in people who are claiming, wow, we should not teach this, I think it's a flattening of either we should teach or we shouldn't teach critical race right. theory. That to me seems like a false dichotomy, right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and I won't go as far as to say that the concept of nuance is on its deathbed. Yeah. It's in hospice care. Yeah, it's, I don't think that's right. It's, it's I think in trouble. Right. And my yeah. biggest hope is that CRT as a dogma, you know, um, is done away with. My biggest fear is that it's done away with, but so is everything else regarding race. Yeah, I, I do not yeah. want to stop talking about race. I just want to talk about it in a good way, a productive way. Yeah. Right? And there yeah. is potential to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and that makes me nervous. A lot of these state legislatures, some of them get it. You know, some of them are like, yeah. we don't, we're not banning talking about CRT. We're banning it as dogmatic facts, right? Right. Um, and others, not so much. Now the nuance isn't there. Yeah. Well, and I, um, I mean, coming back to this topic of how we have conversations, how we have productive conversations, I think, and, and I'll just say, I have a lot of friends who are either like small L libertarians um, who, or people who are to the right of center, I think, who, when they are, when they are kind of confronted with, or they are, exposed to any discussion about something. I'm going to take the 1619 project in this as an example. The immediate response in some cases can be, this is bad, this is bad, as opposed to, let's see this as an opportunity to have a discussion about these subjects. Like we have to take sides on this, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's not taking a side necessarily on race. It's taking a side on interpretation of of history, of interpretation, of all these things. And people feel like they have to stake out some ground. Like you were talking about putting on armor and coming with baggage and all that. And I just feel like, I mean, not just nuance, but also saying, let's not start where we have to have staked out our positions on everything. Some things for sure we have to stake out our position on, but in other things, why do we have to be, you know, pro or con 
I can, I'm sitting here thinking, well, why do I have to be pro or con the 1619 project? But I can totally see somebody saying, you have to be pro the 1619 project because you're not listening and you're not understanding the history. I think somebody could say that reasonably, right? I know other people are going to say, no, it's wrong. You know, uh, the, the history is wrong. It's not factual. There are problems with the facts and all these other things. But I don't, I guess, I guess I don't want to take either position. I want to say, let me put this in front of me. Let me read it. And let me talk to somebody about it. Yeah. Um, we have trouble as a society um, approaching a topic or a conversation with uh, what Otto Scharmer calls an open heart, mind, and will. He wrote this huge book called Presencing. And it really is all about, you know, showing up. You, you, we can't not show up with ideas, you know, uh, pre-established ideas. Right. We can't do that. What we can do is be willing to relinquish them um, if necessary. If we find things that um, prove us wrong, we have to be open to that. And we have to be okay with, for a lack of a better term, losing. Not every conversation is so dire that it's not life and death, literally, right? So I go into a lot of conversations with no desire to win or lose. I just want to have the conversation. The conversation in itself is important because I may hear things I didn't realize. You may hear things you didn't realize. And minds may not be changed by the end, but I'm better for it. And hopefully so right. are you. Um, that, so that that's how I go into things. What's more, you know, um, when I'm talking to somebody, the last person I want to convince is the person I'm talking to. Sometimes it's about the uh, spectators, you know, the eavesdroppers, oh, yeah. you know, uh, the yeah. people who aren't quite sure what's going on so they can hear uh, various viewpoints on this and, and make their own decisions. The conversation in itself is important. And that's what a lot of people don't understand. They think the winning or losing is everything. Um, they don't yeah. understand how beneficial talking is. Yeah. I like that point a lot. We had on um, a fellow who had written a book with a friend of his. They had driven across the country like three or four times and they had different political points of view. And in the course of these discussions in the car, some of them got really uncomfortable and they couldn't get out, right? Because they're stuck in a car in the middle of the desert together. But at the beginning of this um, book, they're in law school together and he's describing these conversations that they have in bars with all their friends around listening and the difference between that and a one-on-one -on -one conversation, and then they, they went to like Trump rallies and things like that. And they said, when there were cameras around, people behaved differently. You know, um, people had, people could have sort of reasonable, not uh, toxic conversations that were kind of meaningful. And as soon as a camera was there or there were spectators there, all of a sudden the dynamic of the conversation can change. Yeah. So in addition to it being performative at some level in good ways where people can hear things it can also change the dynamic of the conversation yes um and at a, as a rhetorician that's one of the fundamental aspects of what i do and what i teach um the term i use and other rhetoricians use is called kairos um and that term basically means a confluence of time place people involved mm -hmm. subject matter and things like that all those things will dictate how you express something and you may have the same message but if the other aspects are different, you're going to use different examples, different metaphors, right? Uh, you're going to uh, use a different tone, perhaps. Same message, right? Same facts, but you got to come at it differently because of the contingencies of the situation, right? And that's also kind of what Otto Schwarmer talks about in presencing. You know, it's, it's about the present moment. 
You have to be mindful about what this particular moment is. So along with nuance, context is also in hospice care. Uh, but yeah. really, you know, they, they, they want to have this universal magic bullet of how to do things. That is not how we should go about doing things. I think adaptability is one of the most important human characteristics there are. And too many of us lack it. So I want to talk more about a couple of things. I want to talk about your research specifically and what you're working on. And I want to, I want to hear a little bit more about your recent book and, and how in the midst of what I, I think there has to, we have to say that there is an opportunity for more discussion on the subject of race that we should be capitalizing on for sure. But if we don't have the right tools, if we don't approach it the right way, we're gonna waste that potential at some level. So in your research and in your work, um, tell me a little more about how you're working to make that possible. Last year when you know, everything blew up uh, you know, with George Floyd and you know, the things leading up to George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, yeah. Breonna Taylor, um, I saw that as a perfect opportunity, right? To really get the conversation about race going. And as unfortunate as, as those things were, when I started realizing how people were reacting to it, I said, wow, this is a, you know, kind of unprecedented moment you know, yeah. um, in American history, right? Not just uh, my life. So we should take advantage of it. And I think we blew it, you know? I mean, it's, mm. still, it's still open we can still do it. Um, but we blew it because um, the, I'll say CRT-based modes of anti-racism. Others call it uh, critical social justice uh, because you know it, it may be a bastardized form of CRT, and and that's mm -hmm. fine. The point is, when you know we split people up into oppressor and oppressed, um, the conversation is over before it begins. When people are valuing lived experience to the point where if you question that lived experience, you're basically questioning their existence and they respond yeah. like that, the conversation is over before it begins, right? When yeah. you are typecast as the oppressor and a request for uh, you know, clarification or elaboration is taken as an insult or a kind of violence, literally, the conversation is over before it begins. Now, I'm gonna ask you to clarify a bit because I think there are probably people in our audience who are reading things about, um, especially as we just talked about with the, state legislatures talking about critical race theory in the classroom. I think there are probably people who hear critical race theory, maybe they Google it and they still aren't sure when we're talking about critical race theory, what that means. Um, because I think now it's being turned in, like, like a lot of things in the news, it can be turned into, oh, that's something that's good or it's bad in and of itself, just because I hear it in this context. So average person sitting in their car on the subway listening to this, Critical race theory is what, where does it come from? Um, with the understanding we want to understand, not like I don't want to pound on it and I don't think you do either say this is right or wrong. It's being used a certain way, right? Right, right. Um, well, when I think about CRT, critical race theory, I think about that game, uh, the grapevine game we, yeah. or whisper down a lane or something yeah. like that. By the time it gets yeah, to like the end, it's totally yeah. different. Yeah, right? totally. That's, that's kind of what's going on with critical race theory. Um, and, 
you know, uh, how it started is one way. Now it's manifesting today is something different, right? I mean, and you can see aspects of CRT in it, right? I mean, you can see how it's connected to CRT, but it's not quite CRT. So let's talk about what CRT is. Um, it comes out of uh, legal studies, right? And um, it comes from a group of uh, people who said, we can't just universally apply these laws. We have to look at things contextually, chirotically, right? Yeah. And, and make determinations based on that. And uh, how to try to be as meticulously detailed as possible. But then people come along and say, uh, and critical legal studies, is that you know even those empirical details can be interpreted in different ways by different people based on their subject positions. So we have to take that into consideration, and from there we get critical race theory, uh, where you know uh, people can look at um, a person of color in society and try to apply these universal rules to them when you know their situation is much different from the situation of um, you know say a. a um, white person or somebody uh, enjoying a hegemonic position. So critical race theory mm -hmm. um, has several tenets to it. One is intersectionality. You've heard that term, uh, many people have. Mm -hmm. um, and that basically says that no one is one thing and you have to look at them as the specific person they are and they have intersections. Um, I may be black and a woman next to me may be black but as a black woman, she's going to have a different experience than I do as a black man, right? And yeah. other yeah. black woman lesbian is going to have a different experience than both of us, right? Mm -hmm. So taking all those things into consideration before you start making judgments, that's intersectionality. Interest convergence is another idea. And this idea is that, you know, whenever uh, there is legislation or a policy uh, meant on its face to benefit people of color, it's also benefiting white people. In fact, uh, things aren't done unless they also benefit white people. Right? Mm -hmm. So that's the convergence of interest there. So, I mean, all the things you just described, as you describe them, I listen to that and I say those things are all things that make sense to me. They are all things that I think are um, not crazy ideas, mm -hmm. right? And that particularly as someone who has a background in the academy, it makes sense that we should be talking about those things. And certainly that academics should be thinking about that, thinking about how we apply those things in different settings. That all seems totally reasonable. Um, now, what happens after that where, and I'm not asking you that you have to give us a whole history of it, because oh. I know that's not fair to you to ask you to do that, but, 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 you're where you're seeing what's happening now what has in between sort of occurred that we now are in a position where it's like well and i'm sure there were people all along who had challenges to critical race theory but today it's like now we got state legislatures saying hey we don't want this taught in schools or we don't want this mandated to be taught in schools or you know whatever else it is how do we get from legal studies to where we are today I will say this about people who are blaming critical race theory itself. Um, one of the late works of Derrick Bell uh, before he passed was called Racial Realism. And the thesis of that article is that racism is not going away, we can't fight it. The best we can do is in the name of dignity, 
to just stand up and, and fight against it. We can't get rid of it, but we can fight, right? So uh, we can't get rid of it, but we can disrupt. We can't get rid of it, but we can make things a lot harder for white people, right? He, he, he talked about this antidote uh, when he was talking to a, a, a elderly civil rights activist in the early 60s. And he asked her, how do you maintain all this energy? How do you do this? And she just looks at him and says, I live to harass white people, right? And that's, that was her motivation. And he's using that to say, listen, we can't win, but we can, you know, basically, quote unquote, harass white people and main, maintain dignity that way. Mm -hmm. So if you can't win, you know, um, if the goal that you're seeking is unattainable, then what do you care about truth? What do you care about being hypocritical? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what do you care about being fair? What do you care about mm -hmm. censoring somebody? Right? Mm -hmm. It's not about right or wrong. Now it's about just making people uncomfortable. Yeah. So, I mean, if you take that and extend it, then contemporary anti-racism makes a lot more sense. So we go back to when you were talking about the different kinds of conversation we have, and you say there's one one type of conversation is telos. You know, we're going towards a purpose. We're right. trying to achieve something. That rips out that purpose, the purpose of positive change Size. that gets, that's gone that's now. Gone. Yeah. Right. And when that's gone, who cares about tactics, right? Reasoning, right. rationality, you know, who cares? Because your, your purpose now is not, as you say, it's not positive change in the sense of getting, trying to get rid of racism, trying to eradicate it. It is the purpose now is as, is harassment, right? Or not harassment, but it's yeah. to, to disrupt, disrupt, yeah. disrupt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so now this is, I wanna get back to your research and what you're doing, um, both, like I said, your book, but also, and so you say, okay, now we've got an opportunity to have a discussion. We've got an opportunity because of what's going on in the world to have a discussion. Um, I know you also have, in addition to your book, you are you have a project called, and I know you're doing it with other people, I'm sure, Free Black yeah. Thought, which, I want. I really want you to talk about this because both. I think it's it's really exciting and very much from my point of view the idea of intellectual diversity, intellectual humility, not flattening people out and saying there's one way everybody who has a certain experience or a certain characteristic or a certain background or anything else thinks a certain way. There's much more diversity to it. But I also am interested in hearing what kind of responses you've had to that. Um, well, I am a pariah in my field. <laughs> because of yeah. you know ideas of view by viewpoint diversity and free black thought. Um, in fact, I I kind of called out members of my field in a listserv a few weeks ago, saying that you know just acknowledge that you're not talking about all black people. You're talking about a certain kind of black person, right? And if you want to do that, fine. Just say so, so I can stop wasting my time. Um, some people responded positively. Most people didn't respond at all um, mm -hmm. because they, you know, there's incentive. They have skin in the game when it comes to saying that all black people are this and therefore we need to do this, right? I don't mm -hmm. know what mm -hmm. exactly their motivations are. It could be careerism. It could be misguided. I don't know. Um, but what I do know is that diversity of viewpoint within, you know, the group of black scholars and activists, not just in my field, but period, 
something that doesn't yeah. seem to be acknowledged. So I and a bunch of other people decided to acknowledge it, right? And create this website and this compendium of uh, free black thinkers, right? Uh, for people to take a look at, just to, to know that it's there, right? Mm -hmm. We're not trying to change people's minds ideologically. We're trying to show, show them that there are different ideologies, you know, uh, right. within quote unquote, the black community. I don't even like that term, but I'll use it right now for the sake of brevity. Um, yeah, and, and uh, that's really the gist of it. And it's in its beta form right now. I mean, we have uh -huh. all kinds of plans regarding, you know, um, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm talking uh, prematurely here, but uh, podcasts, obviously articles and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, that's the motivation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope in addition to, and I, I'm, I guess, sadly not surprised to hear you describe yourself that way as a pariah in your, um, in your field. Like, I, I hope in addition to that, you are hearing, you said you have, but I hope you hear more people saying, um, you know, thank you. And thanks for reminding us that there is diversity of point of view, diversity of ideas that, because it seems to me like part of the objection to be treated a certain way because of the color of your skin or any characteristic about you is that it 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 makes you into this flat being that doesn't have different experience it doesn't have different ideas right so to not be willing to acknowledge that or to find that threatening somehow to me that again i understand too that uh this isn't the same as saying well we can have diversity of opinion about how we handle the national budget right mm -hmm. i mean that's something that maybe we can afford to be more ambivalent about, but we can't afford to be ambivalent about how people are treated because of the color of their skin. Um, but this just says to me again, that it's a very complicated subject that requires us to listen um, and to think more than to just kind of yell at each other. Yeah, and um, I've been fighting, you know, uh, being defined uh, flatly, as, as you say, since I was a kid. I've been fighting that since I was a kid. And now to be a professor in a field and have that field embrace the idea of racial essentialism, it's depressing in one way and it is absolutely infuriating in another way. And I'm going yeah. to say something about it. I'm gonna keep saying something about it. And I, I, I think it's awesome and I appreciate that you have that point of view about it because it's really important. Um, for people to be able to hear and talk about this. And that brings me, I think, to, I don't think, um, a lot of times when we're talking to somebody, um, you know, we talked to uh, Alex and Resta a couple of weeks ago about immigration and about people's misperceptions about immigration and the facts about immigration. And it's kind of like, okay, well, if somebody is sitting here listening to this and they're in their community and, and, these are the kind of people who are listening to this. They're saying, look, I want to affect positive change in my community, right? I want to be a part of more productive discussion. I want to be a part of um, listening and changing and all these other things. So from your point of view as somebody who studies communication and rhetoric and how we talk to each other and how we think about it, um, as well as your work on race, if I'm a person in my community and I say, I'm worried about what's going on, I want to be part of making things better. 
And one of the ways I can do that is to engage in discussion with other people. What kinds of, what kinds of resources, suggestions, kind of tips do you have for people given all of the things you know about these subjects? Well, it's, it's hard for a lot of people to find like-minded others, especially like-minded others uh, of color um, because the, you know, the, the image we get from the media, from people in my field and things like that is that, you know, uh, people of color feel one way, right? And um, they think that, you know, white people and white society or American society rather um, is inherently racist. So, you know, again, as I said earlier, conversation ends before it begins. So yeah. number one, find people who have expressed clearly that they don't think that way, like yours truly, and uh, talk to them and, and try to collaborate. And um, when you talk to them and try to collaborate, they'll each give you different uh, you know, places to go and, and read things. Um, I would suggest you know, going back to the uh, you know, original scholars of critical race theory to see what they were trying to say, right? Yeah. And then compare it to what's going on right now, yeah. um, which is, um, not really CRT. Like I said earlier, you can see traces of CRT in it, but it's not really CRT. I'm not quite sure what it is. It's being called critical social justice. So let's go with that. Um, and, you know, they can look at free black thought as well, right? Yes, yes, yes. Several texts there. Um, most of them are linked. So you can, you know, actually get to them from the website, right? And, and, and try to listen to more heterodox viewpoints within people of color, right? And, and, and do that so that you know, okay, I, I see what uh, the mainstream anti-racists are saying. And I see what these other people are saying. And maybe when I have conversations, I can bring these other people up and hopefully people can converse with me. Um, yeah. A lot of people who call themselves uh, anti-racist would shut down the conversation because, you know, What's the point of having a conversation if you can't fix it? So I, I'm glad you mentioned it because we would have said, I would have said, we're going to link to Free Black Thought, obviously in the um, show notes, we'll link to some of your work um, and your, your bio and everything else. If people want to follow the work that you're doing, because it lends itself to exactly what you were just talking about, where's the best place for them to see what you're writing, what you're talking about, what you're thinking about. Well, I recently published a book called A Critique of Anti-Racism and Rhetoric and Composition. Um, it's specific to um, my field for the most part. The first, um, the preface, introduction, and first two chapters can be read by anybody. And then it gets into the specifics of my field. I should warn though, that it is a, uh, it's written for a scholarly audience. Uh, mm -hmm. So there are certain terms that I assume my audience knows that, you know, a lay audience may not. So I would direct you to my writing in Newsweek and Quillette mm -hmm. and ARIO, uh, mm -hmm. one of the uh, many websites out there that are diverse uh, in yeah. viewpoint. And uh, I would go from there. Oh, yes. And Heterodox uh, Academy blog, their blog. Absolutely. Have, yeah. Uh, have things up there so yeah absolutely we will definitely do that we will link to all of those things so people can easily check them out uh, and we want to thank you very much because 
uh, as people can hear as you're you're talking about the things that you have written, you're a very busy person. <laughs> and so we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. We will link in the show notes to those articles that we discussed, as well as to some of Eric's other work. And I really hope you'll check that out because, uh, as you could tell, I'm sure from our discussion, that Eric's a very interesting person with a lot of interesting things to say. And I learned from him, and I, I suspect you will too if you read his writing. So what I take away from this conversation, uh, and I think... Look, I think conversations about race, for all the reasons that Eric described, are difficult conversations to have. Um, and that is perhaps, one, a signal that we need to be having more conversations and that, like all of the subjects we talk about, we need to be thoughtful, intentional, we need to listen in those conversations. I do think one thing that's really, really important for me to remember and I think it's something that I can make mistakes about all the time. And it's not, not specifically about race, but about the way we approach conversations and the kinds of assumptions we make about the people with whom we're having conversations. Eric said it really well. Nobody wants to be treated like they're just one thing or another um, or that they're, you know, sort of this flat um, human being who has only one important thing about him or her. I know that's how I feel about myself. I don't want people to make assumptions about what I think based on some characteristic about me. Uh, but I think it's the kind of thing that it's very easy to do because, you know, we do it all the time. We take shortcuts to try and understand other people and other ideas. And this is a place where we should stop that. And we should not be taking shortcuts and we should listen uh, and we should engage in conversation with people who want to be a part of that, who want to be a part of it because they think there's an end goal that's better than where we are today. And I hope for your sake, and I certainly hope for my sake, that I can seek out those people and have more conversations and listen and learn. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.